All right. God's love for us and showing us his love. And yet, what would you do? How would you respond if somebody told you, you know, I don't think God loves us? Have you ran across that? I don't really think God loves us. This, we're something we assume, something we say, something we well, just take for granted in a sense. Of course, God loves us. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And yet, somebody could after a time become convinced he doesn't love us. You think that's true? Do you think that happens even among church people? Do you think that happens? What would you say? How would you respond? How would you help them? What about if we turn that around? What if God were to tell us, you don't really love me? Not me, me. God, me. What if God were to tell us, you don't love me? Could that happen? Does that ever happen? It has happened. The, the prophet we're going to hear from today, the prophet Malachi, some like to say that great Italian prophet Malachi, uh, the prophet Malachi responds to both of those questions. He, he, he addresses people who would say God really doesn't love us. He addresses even, even more fully people who are pretending who don't really love him. And, and in doing this, he shows us a way. He shows us something about how we can talk to, for God. How we can talk about the love of God with other people. Maybe people in church. Maybe people out of church. Do you love me? The Lord says. Uh, the, the prophet Malachi. Malachi means my messenger. Malachi is God's messenger, who says something about the mess, a messenger who is to come, he says something, in, in fact, about the messenger of the covenant, the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus. Malachi mentions him, but Malachi also tells us something about how we would be God's messenger. That's why I put my messenger up. I want to keep that before you as we go through this this morning, because you and I are like Malachi. You and I also can be the Lord's messenger. In fact, we must be. We must be. If we're going to live as disciples, if we're going to live as followers of Christ, our, our, our heart's passion is to tell others of him, okay? As his messenger. Our, as his messenger, telling about the messenger of the covenant, telling about the Lord Jesus to those who need to know him. If you open your Bibles to, to, to the book of Malachi, you'll find us, I think, at about page 801. If you're using a pew Bible, if you're using your own Bible, I'm glad that you are. I have no idea what page you're on. But Malachi is the last prophet of the Old Testament. We're going to do at least one more. We're going to, we're going to look at something from uh, the, the prophet Jeremiah, how he opens his prophecy next week. So we'll do at least one more of the prophets. But Malachi is the last prophet. So if you find Matthew instead, the book of Matthew, New Testament, just flip back one book and you will find the prophet Malachi. Let's begin. Just, just, just uh, read a few verses here. First, the Lord... Uh, confronts, well, all the way through, I should tell you this, all the way through, there's a pattern in, in Malachi. In fact, I gave you this in your notes. What Malachi does, what God does through his messenger is again and again, he lifts the lid and he says, this is what you're thinking. Now, that's actually kind of scary when you think about it. 
He knows what you're thinking about it. God knows what we're thinking. God knows the meandering of our mind. God knows what it is that we, we, we form and shape in our own mind, in our, in our twisted conclusions about life and about him. And in Malachi, he confronts them. Like I said, he shows us something as well about what, what it is that we could be as his messengers. But let's jump right in. What they are thinking, they are thinking that God really doesn't love us. Look at, look at the book of Malachi, chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? How have you really loved us, God? What have you done for me lately? That's what they're thinking. You know, life is tough. Life is hard. It's not really working out. We, 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 we thought it'd be better than this. We thought it would be bigger than this. We thought life would be easier than this. God, if you love us, then why has this, that, that, or that happened? You don't really love us. God, what have you done for me lately? I have loved you, says the Lord, even though you think he doesn't really love us. And what does he say about his love? He says, is not Esau Jacob's brother? Declares the Lord, and yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage, the jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are going to rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build it, but I will tear it down. They will, be, they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry. There's no restoration for Esau. What is he saying? Well, we would have to go to the book of Romans chapter 9 to, to, to get Paul's help and unpack that phrase a little bit. But to shortcut it, it's this. God has decided, God has determined to pour out his mercy on Jacob in a way that it goes beyond normal. It goes beyond expectations. Other countries round about are not going to receive that same kind of grace that God has just decided to give toward this people, Jacob. Jacob, I have chosen to love. I have chosen to be merciful and gracious too, beyond what they deserve. That's the point. That's the point that Paul makes in the book of Romans in chapter 9 about Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That God simply chose to be gracious way beyond what they deserved, what they earned. Mercy without any merit. Um, Esau has sinned and was judged. Jacob has sinned and should also be judged. They felt consequences and chastening against them, but God says, still, I have made you my people. And I will be merciful to you. And it's not because of you, but it's because of God. I have loved you. How do you know? God has loved us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's as basic as that. If Jesus came, if Jesus lived and Jesus died and rose again, it's because God loves you. If, you, if you're convinced that God doesn't love you, then none of that must have happened. Because that's God's testimony. Romans 5 says it this way. God, this is how God demonstrated his love for us. And that while we were yet enemies, we were yet sinners, that we were apart from God, Christ died for us. And not only that, if he loved us that much when we were against him, how will he not now freely give us, those he's made his own children, how will he not freely give us all things? That's important because there's two pieces to it. God's love for us is seen in what he did for us in the past and yet what he will do in the future. What he has promised that he will make good. God loves us in what he has done for it. That, that's the prophetic message, isn't it? That the present we live and we, we, we 
we, we find our way through by faith, trusting in what God has done and what God has promised he will do. And what we, we can be certain of what he will do because of what he has done. How have you loved us? What have you done for me, really? I gave my own son. Uh, it will echo around in your mind. The circumstances in our lives will tell us here or there along the way, I don't think God really loves me. And part of it echoes in your mind because you know deep within inside you, there's things about you, there's things about me that are unlovely. Why would God love me? And yet he does that much. How have you loved us? I gave my son for you. God knows what they're thinking. And his answer is his mercy and grace that is beyond measure. That God is true. God will love us even when we don't deserve it. But the book of Romans says it this way, God will be true even though every man be found a liar. He cannot deny himself. If we deny him, he will not deny us because he cannot deny himself. God is true. God does love us. But the other question, which most of Malachi dwells on, do we really love God? Do we really love God? And if we really love God, how would you know? How would he know? How would others know? That's what he begins to confront in the rest of this book. And he does it with those same series of questions, what they're really thinking. And it's, and it's, and it's, it's uh, introduced over and over again, but you say, but you say, but you say, God knows what's in our hearts. I, I, I remember the children's song. He, he knows what you've been thinking. He knows if you've been... Uh, no, I don't remember the children's song, obviously. <laughs> we'll move on. It probably had no part in this message, and we will just <laughs> cut it off right there. God is asking, do you really love me? Malachi is about getting personal. Malachi uncovers the secrets of our hearts. And, and, and the goal here, I should say this right up front, the goal here is not to try harder. I, be, I need to be better. I need to try harder so that God will be pleased with me. That's not the point at all. The point is to peel back the covering to peel, peel back the facade and the pretending to realize my love for God is imperfect, and yet he loves me still. He knows that already, and yet he loves me still. That's where we need to rest this morning. But how do we really love God? Well, God says, a son honors his father, in verse 6, and a servant his master. And then if I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, whoops, if I am master, where is my fear or my respect? Says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priest, who despise my name. And yet you say, how have we despised your name? How have we dishonored God? How have we dissed God? How have we disrespected God? By offering polluted food upon my altar. You say, how have we polluted your altar? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Take that lamb. Take that lame or sick lamb that was going to die anyway. Take that to your governor. See if he would be pleased with the gift. Oh, we couldn't do that. You know, you didn't bring something good to the governor. But what about God? If you'd bring something good to the governor, if you'd bring something good to somebody you want to impress because you want them to think well of you, what would you bring to God? That's the point. The point here is no skinny sacrifices. If I can put it that way, no skinny sacrifices. It's not a matter of paying God off, but it's a matter of honor. Think back to that someone 
It may have been someone that raised their hand and said they like flowers, by the way. But think back to that someone that you did things to show your love to. And it was special. And it was costly. And it was the best that you had because you made much of her. Because you loved her. And, and in your cherishing of her, you wanted her to know that you loved her. You wanted him to know that you loved him. One of the gifts that you could bring to him was the, the reality and the assurance that you did love him, loved her, right? That's what's going on here. It's not about buying God's favor. It's not about an exchange. If I put the quarter in, I'll get a Coke out. It's not, God is not the God of the vending machine. I heard that from one of our elders this week. That's a great analogy. We, we put a coin in and we expect a Coke out. And you know, we typically, we want it that way too. For a quarter, we expect a quarter. You don't get a Coke for a quarter anymore, folks. But we want a deal like that from God because God's gracious, God's merciful. No more skinny sacrifices. Skinny sacrifices don't honor God. What do I mean? We don't bring lambs anymore. We don't bring, nobody brought a sheep in. You're all dispensationalists. You don't know what that means, but you didn't bring a sacrifice because one sacrifice, things have changed. He is our sacrifice. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we don't bring sheep and we don't bring blood offerings onto the altar. That was worship. And that bringing of sacrifice was acknowledging the sacrifice from God that I need, I need that, that God will provide himself a lamb for the sacrifice, and I need God's sacrifice because of my guilt and my forgiveness. And that lamb is Jesus. So what will I bring now? How will we worship now? What, brainstorm with me now. What is it that we do that we would call worship? If bringing a sacrifice to the temple was worship in Israel, what would we do without our lamb? What would we do that is sacrifice? We would praise. We would worship, just like the kids say. Bob is pointing. We would present our bodies a living sacrifice. We would present our bodies. We would, we would, I would give myself in service to the Lord. What else would we do? obedience, doing what it is that the Lord has said and called us to do, presenting our bodies in a given direction, a direction not chosen by me, but in a direction given by God. God says, do this, and I say, because I trust you, and I trust your love for me, I will follow you. I will do what you say. We come together in worship. This is our sacrifice of praise unto God, things that the kids even know, right? Okay, well, if coming together in worship is our worship, if assembling together, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some, but, but gathering together to provoke one another to love and to good deeds, to encourage one another. That's why Hebrews says we gather. It's not to, to fill the square on Sunday morning. It's because this is the body of Christ, and we minister to one another. We encourage somebody. We come not merely to receive. We come to give of ourselves for others. In worship. If that is worship, if that is our sacrifice, and I said no skinny sacrifice as well. Some of you weren't here last week or the week before. Or sometime in there, wasn't there a time of gathering when the church gathered, but you did not? Does that happen? Yeah, it happens. I know it happens. Of course it happens. So what was it that kept you away? I don't mean to nitpick, but just for yourself, don't, don't shout out answers here. What was it that kept you away? Well, you know, it could have been, gee, we were tired. We were out late the night before. 
Whatever it was that was out late the night before became at that moment more important than gathering for worship. It became more important than bringing that sacrifice. Well, goodness, the kids had a, had a game on Sunday, you know, and it was a ways away. It wasn't until noon, but it was a ways away, and we needed to be there for that. Okay, well, that's, I understand. You don't have control over where they're scheduled, but that, at that time, became more important. John Piper describes worship as making much of God. And when we exchange what we acknowledge is worship, when we exchange that for something else, we are making more of something else, and we might as well also at the same time be making less of God. I'm not trying to say don't travel. I'm not trying to say that I'm keeping a list of if you were here last week or not. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to urge, okay, let me give you another example. You, you said praying, and maybe if I could extend that into morning devotional time is one of the places, eh, Pastor Bob can't keep track of this one. Sure. Okay, that is worship. Sometime recently, you missed it, right? It didn't happen. Or maybe it just isn't happening. What is it that gets in the way that crowds out that morning devotion time? That is your skinny sacrifice. That is where you are making more of something else instead of making much of God. And the thing about the sacrifices is the sacrifices also fed the priests. And we are priests. We are a kingdom of priests. We ourselves feed on God's sacrifice for us as we worship. So the skinny sacrifice makes for skinny faith. It makes for skinny priests. It, it weakens our faith in our worship of the Lord. No skinny sacrifices. The first thing he says, how have you despised me? And the opposite of despising or making less of God is, as Piper says, worship is making much of God. All that what we do, whether it is in worship here, whether it is on, win, on Wednesday in men's summer of service, whether it is in your own quiet time of devotion and prayer, might we make much of God rather than making less of God. Do you really love me? Don't bring skinny sacrifices. Do you really love me? Then why do you weary me? Let's jump down to ver, uh, chapter 2, verse 17. One of, the, one of the other reasons where the Lord says, I say, but you say. Let me, let, let me jump in here in verse 13. The second thing you do, you cover up the Lord's altars with tears, with weeping, with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hands. But you say, why does God not regard it? Why does God not hear us? Why does God not answer us? Why does God not do for us what we need? Why is God distant? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your covenant to whom you have been faithless. Now, that's not 17. That's actually verse 13. That's good. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to let that hang there. Well, I, I guess because I, I opened it, I should say that, that um, our faithfulness in the marriage covenant, our faithfulness in the marriage covenant is where we live out, those of us that are married, faithfulness to God. If you, if you think you can say, I will be faithful to God, and yet I will, I'm not being faithful to, this, to my marriage covenant. You love God by loving your wife. You love God 
by respecting and honoring your husband. That's what the book says. Verse 17, where I was going, you have wearied the Lord. You have wearied the Lord. And that follows what I just read. So, so marriage is a big deal, folks. You have wearied the Lord, and but you would say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. God's fine with that. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? He takes it two ways. First of all, we call good evil and evil good. We redefine God's morality. We redefine things according to the crowd around about us. Or we look around there and we say, where is the God of justice? Well, if we're busy calling good evil and evil good, we don't want the God of justice to show up because he's going to turn things right side up again. How have we wearied God? It wearies God when we go along with the messed up world around about us. Yet one of the consequences in humanity, in the sinfulness of humanity around us, is that men have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. We, what, what they know to be true about God, Romans 1 says, we push that down. And we, and we put something else in its place. And we do this in big ways and little ways. We decide for ourselves in a little thing or a bigger thing, we decide for ourselves, my view on it is better than God's view on it. And God says, why do you weary me? That's how we weary God. And, you know, God is not perplexed. God is not stymied. God's plans will not be thwarted because of our feeble attempts at our own. And yet, how wearisome must it be? Can you, can you imagine the view from heaven? There they go again. What are they? This is almost unbelievable, God says. What are they going to come up with next? Let me give you an example. It says that professing to be wise, the smarter we get, can I say it? The smarter we get, the dumber we get. Professing to be wise, God says, they became fools. You know, in our generation today, what has been obvious in terms of identity, in terms of the most basic things, I remember when I was young, old people talking about the 60s and the 70s, and you couldn't tell the difference between, between guys and girls anymore. You know, the hair lengths got all upset, and women were wearing short hair, and guys were wearing long hair. You just couldn't tell the difference. They thought there was confusion then. They've got nothing on our generation. Things that were, were, were obvious have always been obvious to the most simple of people. This is a guy and this is a girl. This is male and this is female. It's no longer obvious. Well, we're really not sure. We'll get, we have to have a conversation about that. Not everybody can understand the nuances of that conversation. It's really pretty simple. I don't care what surgery you have. You can still tell by DNA, by genetics, who's a, who's a guy and who's a girl by a fingernail clipping. Whether it's got polish on it or not, it doesn't matter. Let me give you another example of this that just presses the point. The, there's something new out there. Have you heard of transabled? It's, it's actually, there, there's, a, there's a, a, a flurry of news articles on it just in the last week. Here's the headline, Becoming Disabled by Choice, Not Chance. Transabled people feel like imposters in their fully working bodies. It goes on to describe the desire and need for a person identified as able-bodied by other people to transform his or her body to obtain a physical impairment. I feel so wrong with this arm. This arm is just not me. You know, I'm supposed, I was born, I was born a blind person, really. 
But now I'm stuck with these eyes. I'm trapped in a body that's not fully me because I'm supposed to be blind or I'm supposed to be one-armed or I'm supposed to be paraplegic. And so people actually harm themselves and now you can actually sign up for surgery. Elective surgery to chop an arm off, to amputate feet, to cause some other disability so that you can be whole. Do you have a problem with that? I have a huge problem with that. These people don't need surgery. These people need help. It is an issue of identity, but it's not a body integrity identity disorder. There is an identity disorder, and the best thing they need is who have we been made to be in Christ? But we call evil good and and good evil. We are, we are willing to, to, to widen the boundaries and stretch the margins and allow in all kinds of things that ought to be obvious and yet they no longer are because we have no standard of real truth. But God has given us that. God gets so weary with the foolishness because he's not, he's not confused by it at all. He sees it as it really is. Where's the God of justice? Oh, he's coming. We, we, we carry on with our games in society, and then we say, we look out there and we say, where is God, why does God allow this? Where is the God of justice? And then Malachi says in chapter 3, verse 1, he's coming. He says, behold, I send my messenger. It's a play on Malachi's word, name, by the way, which means my messenger. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, says the Lord. This is John the Baptist, the messenger now. And John the Baptist is going to introduce another messenger, and the Lord whom you, quote, seek, you ask, where is justice? Justice is coming. The Lord whom you say that you seek, air quotes there, will suddenly come, suddenly when you least expect him, will come to his temple. Then the messenger of the covenant in whom you, you say you delight, yeah, he's coming. He's coming. He's coming. He will make all that's wrong right. And in the meantime, I want to love. I want to be faithful in my love to the Lord who is coming. I don't want to weary him. I want to return. But you say, verse 7, how shall we return? Listen to what sets that up. Verse 6 of chapter 3. Well, verse 5 says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against these sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me. Yes, justice will come. Verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Oh, there's his mercy in the midst of judgment. There's God's mercy in the midst of justice because he has promised his grace. He's forgiveness. From the days of the fathers, you have turned aside from my statues. You have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? How shall we return? It's as if we think nothing is wrong. One of the reasons the private devotions are so important, as well as coming together and that we would be confronted by God's word is important. Not to leave church feeling bad. No, we should leave church feeling better. You should leave devotions feeling better because they are a cleansing time that remind you not only, hey, God has a call on my life, but God has a Savior. And God has cleansing for my soul. That the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses my conscience from any evil, any guilt to freely, lovingly serve the living God. 
And so John says, we want you to have fellowship along with us with Jesus. How do you do that? He says, confess your sins. And he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And yet we're so deceived, we don't see anything wrong. How should we return? I'm okay, you're okay. What do I need to do to return to God? That's why I need to open up the scriptures and have it confront me. God will not dump the truck on you. He is still peeling back hidden things in my heart and showing me things about me that I need to know. Things that I'm grateful for, he didn't dump on me years ago before I was ready for that. Oh, he had plenty for me back then as well. But he's still smoothing the roughness. He's still whittling this away and confronting that and shining light on that. And he does that through his word, and he does that through his people in ways you might not even be aware of. But sometimes in ways we ought to be aware of. We ought to be willing to come alongside in love to one another and say, my brother, my sister, so that we can walk together closer still. Not for guilt, not for judgment for judgment's sake, but that we might walk together in the light as he is in the light and have fellowship together with him. That's what I want us to be as a church family and and to strengthen that all the more. Easily we murmur, and like Israel, something else we could learn. I'll, I'll, I'll choose one more out of the list. But you say, how have we spoken against you? Look down at chapter, chapter 3 and verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? Well, this is how you've spoken against me. You have said it is, it is vain to serve the Lord. Oh, really? Would we say that? To serve the Lord? No, it's not really worth it. It's vain, it's worthless, it's, 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 it's to no real end. So look out for yourselves, serve yourselves. Just, you know, parents, we just celebrated graduates. I know there were a bunch of them missing. I don't know where they got. They're already out there somewhere, I guess. Dads all want to think they're already out there working. Well, maybe. But, uh, well, we missed them this morning. But, but these graduates, where will we send them? And what do we press them toward? What do we encourage them in? Oh, man, you're going to Bible college. I want you to go to a real college. I want you to go to a good college and, and, and get a good degree so you get a best-paying job, and the best-paying job might be the worst thing for them. They may be like me. They can't handle that money and that kind of success. That might be the huge distraction for them that will just draw them after shiny things and away from the Lord. Maybe what they really need is something much more simple and Rather, a, a foundation. I love, I love what Emily's doing just that, that year in Cape Ray and then whatever else. I think she's doing engineering. Is that right? Oh, such a beautiful little engineer, huh? <laughs> yet, yet, yet to take, take time, I want to I I build a solid Bible foundation that, that my other work and profession will be my mission field for the rest of my life, and I want to lay a foundation for that. That's important. Those are things we need to get behind and support and, and encourage young people toward. And it doesn't have to be in a school setting, but easily, easily when kids, and let me, let me talk to some of those now that are going away to school here and there, going away and off to school now, and, and what will you do there? Okay, I'm going here or there, and it might be a Christian school, it might it might not be a Christian school, but when I leave this church, but this is my church, but will I plug into a church family? Will I plug into a place that as I'm learning other things, I will be continuing to grow and strengthen and nurture my faith in Christ, and that the things that I'm learning, the profession that I'm preparing for, that I will build in, that that I will do as my mission as I walk with and serve and love my Lord. 
that I will not say that I heard a lot when we were leaving the Air Force after 10 years, halfway through to retirement, you know, a glorious military retirement, halfway through. And I said, well, okay, the Lord's calling us out to go to Africa, to Swaziland, wherever that is, to be missionaries. And I told my boss that, and he couldn't make sense out of that. He was a believer. And yet he, could, he said, Bob, Finish your 20 years. You'll be a chief in 20 years. Get your retirement. Then you can serve the Lord in your mission work. And I said, well, he, he's calling me now. I don't know if he'll be calling me in, in 10 years from now. And you know, easily we'll, 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 we'll say, well, that, that's a nice plan. That sounds nice. But you really need to give yourself to success in life. Folks, this is a little, little bit. Our greatest success in life. Paul described it this way, that I might know him. Jesus said, and this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Everything else in this short existence we call life, everything else in this bit of eternity, everything else is the workshop within. We learn what it is to walk by faith with our God knowing him. And there will be the time when one of your children, maybe parents like mine, says, I think God's calling me here or there. And wherever here or there is that they say, you say, no, he can't be calling you there. He must be calling you somewhere else. You must have had a bad connection there. You, you don't care. Why don't you hang up, redial, and see what you get on the next conversation? Because that can be right. Well... No skinny sacrifices, folks. What we want for our children the most, like I can tell you this, what I want for my daughter the most is not to live in Zimbabwe. It isn't. I want her down the street from me. But what I want most of all is for her to be walking in love with her Lord. That's what I want most of all. And they will catch that from us as much as they see that in us. This is Malachi. Malachi doesn't pull any punches, does he? He says, but why do you say, how do we say that? He says, but he knows what they say. He knows what they think. And I said Malachi not only presses us about thinking, does God love us? Malachi presses us about, do we love God? But Malachi also shows us something. This whole series of messages, what I've been most fascinated by, what I've tried to share something out of is, how do the prophets preach? How do they get that message across? And Malachi does something here. He puts the finger. If the prophet Nathan put the finger on the chest, the prophet Malachi puts the finger right here, doesn't he? But why do you say? Why do you say? Why do you think? Malachi knows what's the inside. And what Malachi, he's, 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 he's showing us something very powerful. 1 Corinthians 14 says, you can do a lot of things in the church. And the issue that he was writing to the Corinthian church about was a huge emphasis on speaking in tongues. And he says, if, if a visitor comes into your church, somebody who doesn't know the Lord, who wants to find out what is this whole Christianity thing about? What is this following Jesus thing about? And they come into the church and everybody's speaking in tongues in a different language. He says, what are they going to think? They're going to think you're mad. In the midst of this chaos, they're going to think you people are nuts. But 
But he says in chapter 14, verse 24, if, all, if, if, a, if an unbeliever, a visitor comes in, if all prophesy, all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all, not just the preaching, but within the body. When different ones say something insightful to one another, to that visitor, the secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. That's what I want to happen in this place week by week. That's what I want to happen in your devotional time and mine. That's what I want to happen in our conversations one to another in the times when we linger and visit a little bit. I want us to experience God spoke to me through you. That's what ought to happen here because as Walter Brueggemann puts it, we are called to be a prophetic community. The model of the prophets before shows us something about because the, the Spirit came upon the prophet and the prophet was, was the messenger of God. The Spirit not only is upon us, the Spirit is within us. And we can be a prophetic community. So Paul says all can prophesy in the sense that all can be his messengers. Now be careful. Oh, God told me for you. Well, I'm a little cautious about that. There are some things that I'm real sure that even filtered through my own stupidity, I'm pretty sure God is clear enough about this that I can say, thus says the Lord. I think that's why he wrote it down for people like me. But so be careful about the impressions that are in your, in your head or your heart and you, and you determine them to be from God. They may just be from you, but they might be from God. As they line up with Scripture, as, as, a, as is an expression of the heart of God. But you and I need to speak to people. People, to, people to, who, who line right up with what we've heard here. That um, people who are used to being taken for granted, to, to be used in dishonor and wonder, can anybody honor me? People who are used to betrayal and unfaithfulness and are wondering, will anyone out there be faithful to me? People who have been manipulated and told whatever they, they, people think they want to hear, would anybody tell me the truth? People who have experienced rejection and wonder, can anybody receive me? Could a church family actually embrace and receive me? In an age of self-centeredness, people are wondering, is there anything really worth sacrificing for? Can you show me something worth giving my life to? God, through Malachi in the Old Testament, is demonstrating what Jesus did in the New Testament. Remember when it was said of Jesus, I think it's John chapter 2, Jesus knew what was in man. In relation to, 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 to David and his brothers, God tells Samuel, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And you say, but I can't see somebody's heart. I don't read a screen that pops up over somebody's head and it shows what they're thinking inside. How could I know? Let me give you three quick ways. First of all, sometimes God will simply prompt you. Sometimes you, 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 you just have a sense within you. The Spirit's witness within you that says, I need to call this person. I need to talk to this person. I need to say this to, the, to, to this person. I urge you to follow those. Do that. Take a chance. It, it's good to, to, to test it against Scripture. Is, is this in me? Is this my own perspective? Is this, does this line up with what God says? Can I validate this from what God has said? But the more you immerse yourself in God's Word, you see, in God's perspective... 
all the more, rather than the foolishness around us, then all the more we will be ready for that to flow out of us into the lives of others. When, <clears throat> when God prompts, puts a person on your mind, act on it. It may be a thought to encourage, to say something, careful about overstating, but instead, it might, you might simply introduce it, you know, I was praying for you, if you were, don't lie, don't just make stuff up. I, I guess we'll have to pray for people before we can talk to them then. I, when I was praying for you, and, and this was on my mind. That doesn't insist that this is from God, but perhaps there's some spiritual weight to it. You know, another way that you can speak to somebody's heart, a way that you can discern what it is that God would have me to say to them, listen, listen to them. Listen to them. I, we, I asked a question the other morning among the elders. If somebody were to say to you, I don't think God loves me, what would you say? And one of them, one of the first things that they, they, we, they responded as we were brainstorming together was, well, I would, I would, I would try to unpack that with them. I, I would try to understand from them. So often we, we listen merely to give an answer. We listen merely to refute, to reply, to argue back. We listen to reply rather than listening to understand. Sometimes people say, say things that are poorly said, and they're very abrupt, and they seem just abrasive or wrong, and we want to argue against it when, where did that come from? What wound is there that really needs to be cared for, ministered to, that that simply flowed out of? One of the ways that we can speak prophetically to the heart of people, what's going on really inside, is by listening to them listening to them. Sometimes only afterwards you think, I wish I had said. I should have said. Or some of you slow like me, and it only comes to you an hour or so later, and the moment's gone, the opportunity is lost. No, it's not. Follow up. Say, you know, I was thinking further about what you said. And now maybe your mind has had time to process it more fully and care more deeply. So I thought about what you said, and I, I was really Really, I was touched, I was moved, I was, whatever it is, and, and this came to mind and revisited. That you cared enough to keep thinking about them matters too. But no matter, if God puts something in your heart right at the moment, if you need to listen carefully, practice what I would call loving listening and see what is uncovered, or if it's simply a matter of afterwards, I wish I had said and then still Find a way to say it. Find a way to re revisit it. Care enough to return. And you and I can be, as God says, my messengers, two people who desperately need to hear from him through us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you put us am among people. You put us around people. Lord, people that need to hear from you. Lord, in reality, they, they don't need to hear from us. We would say they need to hear from you. And yet, Father, how would they hear from you except from us? Lord, thank you for the privilege of being messengers. Lord, would we learn something from Malachi? Would we learn something about Malachi about our own worship? That it would be all the more sincere. But, Father, would we also learn something from Malachi about how to speak for you to one another and then to others. Lord, we thank you that you long for us to hear you. You long for us to know your voice. And Father, you would even use us to speak to others. 
Lord, I, I, I pray for myself. I pray for each one of us. Make me your messenger of your mercy for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.